Well, good morning. And I'd like to say good morning to those of you on our live stream as well. And thank you for joining us. I'd love to have you all take your Bibles. And we're going to be, it'll be a little while till we're, we're in here, but you can make your way to Genesis chapter 10. That's the first place we'll be this morning, among others. Um, the year was 1992. I was a young boy living in Heidelberg, Germany, uh, living on a military base. Uh, and while we were physically in Germany, our attention at the time was on the Los Angeles area. Uh, at the time, 1992, there were riots happening as a result of the beating of Rodney King Jr. And it was May 1st, 1992, that Rodney King Jr. was interviewed and famously said, people, I just want to say, can't we all get along? Can't we all get along? Nearly 30 years later, and we're still asking this question. And despite our efforts to become more diverse, more educated, more understanding, more woke, it doesn't seem like things are really getting better, are they? In fact, what once captivated the entire world's attention in 1992 just seems like another night in the news today. So when it comes to this topic of race, how do we respond? How do we think Christianly about race? And is there hope for racial healing? This is the topic we're, we're talking about today as we continue our, ser- our sermon series, Thinking Christianly About All of Life. Good reminder there in your notes this morning that this emphasizes both biblical content and a Christ-honoring attitude. I think this is valuable because we can have the, the right beliefs, we can hold on to the right truth, and we can do it in a pretty crummy way. And so as we think about all these things, especially race, we want to have a Christ-honoring attitude in how we conduct ourselves. I appreciate where this sermon falls in place of the series following our week of looking at marriage and then last week looking at gender. On your notes here, I just want to draw your attention to what we saw last week because I think this plays into today as well. Last week we saw that God created male and female. Both genders are very good, reflecting God's unity and diversity. And as we live in the reality of a fallen world, the church should provide a place of renewal as we look forward to creation. Now, one of the things we're going to see today is you could replace gender there with race. Because very similarly, I believe that race is created by God, that it reflects God's unity and diversity, and in a fallen world, the church should provide a place of renewal as we look forward to new creation. And we're going to unpack that a bit today. Uh, But man, this is a big topic. This is a difficult topic. This is a hot topic in our culture right now. And we should turn to God and ask for his help as we look at this topic and talk about it this morning. So let's pray. Let's ask God for his help, and then we will continue on this morning. Let's pray. God, as we come before you this morning, we realize that, God, we are very limited people. I realize my limitations uh, speaking on this topic. I don't know everything that should be said. Um. And certainly time doesn't allow us to say everything that needs to be said. But God, for these moments that we open up your word, we draw close to you and we come before you humbly asking that you would teach us. That you would give us hearts that are moldable and soft. That you would give us ears that are open, eyes that can see truth. God, in what we do have time to say this morning, that it would cause us as a congregation to reflect you better that you would cause us not to just know truth, but to uh, hold on to that truth in a Christ-honoring manner. So God, in the words that I say, I pray that you would speak through me this morning, and that you would use those things for our benefit. More than this, God, we pray that we would see you more clearly, that we would know more about who you are, that we would be driven to you that we would greater appreciate the gospel and what you have done for us. You are the faithful God. 
And so, God, we lift these things up and ask for your help in them. We ask this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen. So today's topic, race. And as we begin today, I did want to start with a few opening comments um, again, as I just mentioned in my prayer, not enough time to say everything that needs to be said, but a few things I think would be really good to say and at least broach and before we jump into uh, scripture, I want us to kind of get an idea of where our culture is at here as we th- talk about race, as we talk about racism. Uh, our culture has experienced a strong shift towards viewing racism as an external problem an external problem of systems, and an external problem of power imbalances. And this has radically shifted the conversation around racism, including how it's defined. So racism is now being defined more in terms of systems and power, not in terms of personal prejudices. Even in Christian books, which I read a few of in preparing for the sermon, one in particular, The Color of Compromise, defines racism as a system of oppression based on race. I want you to note the word system there. Another definition offered in the book is that racism is prejudice plus power. And the focus on power and system has shifted our focus, and when we talk about racism and race, to external matters. It shifted them so much that today, by and large, our culture believes our biggest need is to fix external things. That the way that we fix racism is we fix economic systems, we fix political systems, we fix judicial systems, we fix academic systems. And as the shift towards external things has happened, there's been a loss of being able to talk about the need for internal change, the need for personal responsibility. And we end up in an incredibly unhealthy place where we say, all my problems are because of that or because of that. Now, this focus on systems and power also means that racism is no longer a matter of personal bigotry or personal behavior. It's about power. Therefore, if you're part of the cultural majority, even if you're not racist, unless you're speaking out against racism and speaking out against the system, If you're seen as just taking part of the, benefiting from the system, just being complacent with the system, then you will be deemed racist. Because it's not about personal behavior anymore. It's about, are you benefiting from the system? Are you complacent with the system? And it also means that if you're part of the minority or the group that's viewed as oppressed, you're really given free reign today to say very bigoted things, very prejudiced things. Because after all, if you're not part of the power structure, then you can't be racist because racism is about power. If you're not in power, you can't be racist. Now, the reason I'm saying these things today is I want us to see how terminology is shifting because when you take two different people who are having a conversation using terminology in very, very different ways, are we going to have a productive conversation? No, we're not. And the reality is, as we live in a culture that's becoming more and more relativistic, the terminology is shifting faster and faster. Now, I think as Christians, we need to be aware of how terminology is being used. We need to be well-informed and well-read and well-studied. But I want us to be aware of these things. Now, if, if all this has your head spinning, then I give you a few uh, places to go look uh, to see on YouTube here. I give you three sermons by Vody Bachman. And I give you these, Dr. Bachman's sermons, I think are really good, but I don't give you these because I agree with everything Dr. Bachman says. There's actually things I disagree with, including he believes that race is a cultural construct, and I don't. We'll talk about that this morning. But I think that Dr. Bachman does an excellent job unpacking where we are as a culture and unpacking terminology. When you listen to any of those, I think you should listen to the one on cultural Marxism more than anything else. You'll be benefited from it. But the reality is, is that Dr. Bachman doesn't say everything about race in three hours of sermons. Therefore, I'm not going to be able to say nearly anything in 30 to 40 minutes. So what do we want to say today? And here's, here's my hope for today is I think we need a biblical foundation 
regarding our understanding of race and lostness. We need to have a biblical foundation that understands what did God create, why did God create it, and we need, to, we need to have these things. So my goal today as I speak is I'm speaking to us. I'm saying things I think we need to hear. I'm not saying things that I think they need to hear out there, okay? I'm talking about things that we as the church need to hear and hear. Does that make sense? All right. Now, a few things then. One, as I talk about race, I just want to be clear about my definition. As I, I use that term race, I'm using that word in regard to cultural and ethnic groupings. Sometimes when we talk about race in the church, people make the point, you know what, we're all one race. We're all the race of Adam. And that's true. But that's not how we tend to use that word race in our culture. We use that word race not to say we're different species. We use it to say we're different ethnic groupings. That's really how the word has been used for about 300 years now, okay? So that's how I'm using the word today. I'm using it really synonymously with ethnic groupings, cultural groupings, all right? Another thing I want to make sure that we're aware of is we need to be aware that our hope is not found in external things. That means this is a big week before us with the election. Pastor Jay already commented on this, but our hope is not found in changing the judicial system, changing the political system, changing the academic system, changing the economic system. Now, does that mean these things don't matter? No, they do matter, but our hope is not found there. And we would be remiss to say, hey, our culture today is putting all their focus on externals. That's wrong. And then we turn around and put all our hope in externals. All right? So we need to be very aware of that. So let's, let's begin here. We're going to work on a biblical foundation. And what I want to do is I want to first answer this question, who created ethnic distinction and why? Now, many things I'm going to say today are going to be very similar to my last sermon just a few weeks ago on the Great Commission. And there will be some overlap here. And so hopefully we, we are aware of that and see that. But our starting place is Genesis 1. You don't have to turn there because this is going to be really brief. But we saw the last two weeks, Genesis chapter 1, God created humans in his own image. We're created in the image of God, male and female, created in the image of God. And did you know that we are still considered created in God's image even after the fall? I referenced Genesis 9, 6 on your notes. Even after the fall, sin did not take away this idea that I am created in God's image. And there is no single verse in the Bible that says any group of humanity has ever had that honor and status removed. That means if you're human today, you are created in God's image. All right? I want to be really, really clear about that. Okay. Genesis 10 then. I just want to give you a moment. Look at your Bible. Just kind of skim over that. What you'll see here in Genesis 10 is a genealogy. And this is referred to as the table of nations. Uh, about 70 ethnic groups, cultures, nations, people groups, whatever you want to call them, about 70 are listed here. And what's very interesting is if you're familiar at this point in Genesis, we've had the creation, we've had the fall, we've had the flood. And up to this point, we've kind of had one people group. And all of a sudden, we get to this table of nations and we have 70 people groups and we say, where did these come from? And Genesis 11 serves as kind of that flashback. You know when you're watching TV and there's the flashback and, and we see what, how things happen? Well, this is what we find here. How did these 70 nations come to exist? Well, Genesis 11 gives us the answer. And what are we going to see? Ethnic, ethnicity and cultural diversity are a creation of God, not a human construct. In fact, I think these, Genesis 10, 11, 12, serve as the next development in understanding what God's redemptive plan for humanity is. So look at Genesis 11 with me, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
Now, God had told humans, spread out and multiply and disperse over the whole earth. And here, humans are disobeying God. And what are they doing? They're building this tower with its top in the heavens. Now, this is not necessarily a physical description. Don't picture a skyscraper in your mind. This is a functional description. This was a religious place where they were essentially going to try to make themselves gods. And this is yet another example of the human tendency for self-reliance of, I'm not going to trust God's salvation plan. I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to save myself. And so they start building this tower and God comes down. He knows exactly where humans end up when they're left unrestrained and left to their own self-reliance. The flood was the result of this sort of thing. And God knows it. So he comes down and his response is to uh, confuse languages. We go from one language to many to make distinct people groups and to scatter them. Now, one of the things I want us to, to think about here, was this an interruption in God's plan? Was this a little hiccup of like, oh, my plan was about to get messed up, and I had to go and spread all these people out, make all these languages, and now how do I get back to just one language? Is that what God's plan is? Is God saying, how do I get back to that Garden of Eden when we just had one good language and one people group? Is that God's plan? I don't think so. You see, my theology says God is a plan A kind of God. God's not on his plan B. God's not on his plan C. This was part of God's plan all along. He wasn't surprised by this. He wasn't confounded by this. He wasn't, his plan wasn't upset by this. Uh, this was part of God's plan. And, and why do I say that? Well, immediately following this, we come to Genesis chapter 12, a place that we spent some time in a few weeks ago. He comes to Abram, and what does God say? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, who is he talking about? Is he just talking generically about nuclear families? I don't think so. I think God is is speaking about all these nations in Genesis 10. That's why the flow of the text is this way. Genesis 10, here's the nations. Genesis 11, how did they come to be? Genesis 12, by the way, my plan is to bless all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, all the ethnic groups of the earth through Abraham. God's redemptive plan is to bless the nations. So Genesis 12 shows us God's intention is to bless the ethnic groups he created. God, and here's the thing. God is going to repeat these promises over and over again in the Bible and Scripture. He's going to frequently speak about his heart for the nations. And God's repeated promise gives no indication that he's trying to ever undo ethnic distinction. This is a creation of God's. It's a good creation of God's. All right, so that's the beginning. That's the foundation. So that's who created ethnic diversity, but what's the end goal for ethnic diversity? What's the end goal for ethnic distinction? Well, we've got to turn to the other end of our Bible for that, Revelation. Again, we were here a few weeks ago looking at the Great Commission. And as we look at the end of Scripture, we do not see a loss of ethnic or cultural distinctiveness. First of all, in Revelation 7, 9, John is seeing this heavenly throne room scene. All of these people are worshiping God. And what do we see in Revelation 7, 9? Well, John says, after this, I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What's John seeing here? He's seeing diverse languages. They're not all speaking the same language. He can see distinction because he's seeing different tribes and different people groups. They don't all look the same. And what are they saying? They're saying salvation belongs to who? Our God. They're not saying salvation belongs to their God or his God or her God. Our God, all of them and their diversity point to the same God and say salvation belongs to our God. Now, this is not the end of redemptive history. Uh, The apocalypse is still happening on earth here. So what happens in the end? 
Do we all get merged into one indistinct mass of people, one indistinct group, all speaking the same language, all wearing the same clothes? What happens in the end? Well, we see what happens in the end in Revelation 21 on a new earth and a new creation. Notice what John observes about the people in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. It says, The city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What does John see at the conclusion of God's redemptive plan on a new earth? Well, we see distinct nations bringing their own unique glory and honor to worship God. They're bringing tributes of glory and honor to worship God. Now, in my previous sermon, I used the analogy of the puzzle. If you don't remember it, go back and listen. But I talked about the fact that if God has created every nation, every people group with distinct glory, distinct honor in order to worship him, then if one is missing in this new creation, then God would be receiving incomplete worship. It'd be like giving a friend a puzzle as a gift, knowing a piece is missing. It's not a good gift. So God's desire is not to undo national distinctiveness, not to undo ethnic distinctiveness. He created it so there would be, in this diversity, the ability for finite human beings to reflect more accurately the glory of an infinite God through color and diversity and beauty. By the way, Revelation 22 then shows us God's desire is to heal the nations, not disband them. In Revelation 22, 1 and 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. One of the realities we need to understand is sin doesn't just affect us as individuals. It affects us nationally as well. It affects ethnic groups. If God gave each ethnic group unique glory, then what sin does is it twists that glory and causes us to use our glory to lift ourselves up and glorify and worship ourselves rather than glorifying and worshiping God. I want you to see there that on a cultural level, we need healing. And where does this healing come from? It comes from God. It doesn't come from fixing an external system. All right? It comes from God. Now, we've seen the beginning of the Bible. We've seen the end of the Bible. We have this idea that there will be uh, unity and diversity. It will reflect the beauty of God. Uh, The nations will be healed. Of course, that seems really, really far off. Long way away. How does this apply to our world today? Can there be uh, racial, true healing in a racially broken world? Referencing again the review from last week, you know, Matt said, as we live in the reality of a fallen world, the church should provide a place of renewal as we look forward to a new creation. As we look forward to this new creation, our present reality should begin to reflect it, and we should be a place of renewal in the church. Is this possible? Well, I think it is, and I think we see it right in the very beginning of the church. I want you to turn to Acts. We're going to end up in Acts chapter 10. But prior to Acts, the common mindset was that to follow God, you really needed to become Jewish. If you were a Gentile, meaning a non-Jewish person, if you were one of the nations to, to be God's, be right with God, you had to really become Jewish. It wasn't just a matter of changing your religion. It was changing your entire cultural identity. I had to leave my cultural identity, take on a Jewish cultural identity, take on Jewish name, Jewish tradition, Jewish dress. I had to get circumcised. And you know, it wasn't unknown among the Israelites that God had a heart for the nations. I referenced Matthew 23, 15. Don't have to turn there. Just listen to it. But Jesus is, is... is criticizing the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says this in Matthew 23, 15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. 
And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ouch, that's a pretty pointed thing, isn't it? But notice what's happening there. They knew God had a heart for the nations. They were actually doing mission trips. Did you know that? The Israelites were doing mission trips. They were sending people across land and sea to tell them about God. But the idea was you'd have to become a proselyte. You'd have to leave your culture and become Jewish. And Jesus is saying here, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. But by and large, this is the understanding. Even within the early church, this is the understanding. To follow Jesus, you've got to be Jewish. Everybody who's ever followed Jesus has been Jewish. I mean, Jesus was Jewish, right? So this was the idea, and God's going to radically change things, starting in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, Peter is up on his roof praying, and it's about noon, he's hungry. He goes into this trance and gets this vision of this blanket coming down from heaven, and it has all sorts of unclean food on it. I mean, there's bugs on it, there's lizards on it, there's probably some bacon on it, you know, and this is just revolting to Peter. And he hears this voice saying, you know, kill this stuff, eat it. And he's saying, no, I've never touched anything unclean or common before in my life. And the voice keeps saying, don't call anything unclean or common that I have called clean. This happens three times and then Peter comes out of this vision and there's a knock on his door and, oh, there happens to be some Gentiles there looking for Peter. And they want Peter to come to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He is a leader. He's a Gentile. He would be considered unclean. And, and Peter hears that voice again. He's told by God, go with them. That's what this whole blanket thing was about. Go with them. So Peter goes. He comes to Cornelius' house and he finds in Cornelius' house a whole bunch of people gathered. And I want you to see in Acts chapter 10, I want you just to see how much racial tension there was here, okay? Because Peter starts speaking, and he chooses a weird way to begin a sermon, really. Acts 10, verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? Weird way to start a message. Be like if I were a guest preacher and invited to preach in a church in San Francisco. And I started my sermon and said, you know how detestable it is for a Seahawks fan to associate with 49ers fans. But God told me not to call anyone classless and losers, so here I am. Okay, now, if you're a 49ers fan, I'm just teasing, okay? Apologies, we, we tease about these things. I don't really think that, but... But do you see how this would be a weird way to start? There's some tension going on here between Jews and Gentiles. But Peter goes ahead and he starts preaching. And he's sharing the gospel with them and something amazing happens. Look at verse 44. In the middle of Peter's sermon, verse 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in, in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, if you read earlier in Acts, another group is brought into the church, the Samaritans, and the events are very different there. The Samaritans believe they get baptized. They don't receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles, John and Peter, are sent to lay hands on them, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So why the difference here? Well, I think here's the difference. The Samaritans were at least circumcised people. They weren't well liked by the Jews, but at least they had that one thing going for them. Here, these are completely uncircumcised, completely unclean people. And, and I believe this. If they had said, wow, Peter, this is really good. We want to believe this. What should we do? I have no doubt in my mind Peter would have said, well, you know what? First, we really need to circumcise you guys. Uh, we probably need to clean up a few of your habits and traditions, maybe change your diet up a bit. And then we can talk. Let's get baptized. Then we'll lay hands on you and you'll get the Holy Spirit. I have no doubt in my mind that Peter would say that because this is his whole concept of what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. And yet, what does God do? 
without any ability for human effort or human interaction or human intervention, they receive the Holy Spirit as they are. And receiving the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is a sign that you are one of God's people. You now are considered God's people. You're part of the church, completely accepted as you are. On your notes, I say the way in which God includes the Gentiles is significant. There's no human intervention needed, no cultural changes made, not even the slightest amount of human effort is allowed because it's such a radical idea that these Gentiles, these people who are so different ethnically, would be considered God's people. Now, this creates a lot of controversy in the church. There's a group of Christians saying, man, no, the, the time out here, you really need to get circumcised. Uh, you guys really can't be good Jesus followers unless you are circumcised. So Acts 15, this finally comes to a head. And they have to have, the leaders of the church have to have this Jerusalem council. They have to decide, do the Gentiles need to become circumcised? And I want you to look at Acts 15. Look at verse 7, because Peter is going to stand up. And he's going to reflect on his time at Cornelius' house as he argues in favor of the Gentiles. He says this in verse 7, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to the time that God chose him to go to Cornelius' house. And what happened there? Verse 8, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In other words, they received the Holy Spirit. God attested to them that they were, he witnessed to them, they were accepted by him. Why are you trying to make them follow the law when we really haven't done a very good job at following it ourselves? We know salvation doesn't come through this. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. So what happens? Well, the the council decides you don't have to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. They reach the decision. These Gentiles don't have to become circumcised. In fact, they send them this kind of, it's humorous how short the letter is they send them. They basically say, hey, some people have come and disturbed you. And by the way, no, you don't have to be circumcised. Here are the few things we ask you to do. And it's very short. It's like, don't eat blood. Don't participate in sexual immorality. Don't, you know, sacrifice things to idols. Kind of obvious things, but things that would have ruined their testimony uh, among unsaved Jews living in cities everywhere around the world. So they wanted these Gentile believers to maintain a good testimony with with the Jewish crowd, but they didn't say, oh, and by the way, one thing you should do is at least practice this holiday. It's a really cool holiday of ours. Or you should practice this ceremony, or you should practice these dietary habits, or you should speak this language. They didn't say any of that. They basically said, you're fine as you are. See, Acts 15 formalizes the new reality that you can follow God while retaining your cultural identity. And that taking on Jewish culture gives no advantage. It's not to say there's something wrong with Jewish culture. Jewish culture is beautiful. It too is a creation of a God for his beauty. But taking on Jewish culture gives no advantage. And here's the thing. Amid diversity, unity is found through the commonality of the gospel. Unity is not found in uniformity. Unity is found in diversity with the commonality being in the gospel. So Acts 15 gives the freedom for different cultural expressions of Christianity while also encouraging great humility. Which church is better? Jewish church or Gentile church? Well, that actually became a problem in Rome, and it was one of the reasons why Paul wrote the book of Romans, in which he concluded, every mouth needs to be shut, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no advantage that the Gentiles have. There's no advantage that the Jewish believers have. We only find our, our significance in the gospel. Which is better, an American church or an Indian church? Or a Spanish church? or an Indonesian church, or a Chinese church, which is better. 
Which is better? An American church that's predominantly white or an American church that's predominantly black? And I want you to see here that there's room for different expressions and God is glorified in all of them. Now, let's apply God's word this morning. As I thought about what's important to say, what's important to cover today, several things came to my mind. Again, can't cover everything, but here's some things I think we need to keep in mind within the church. Our culture says our greatest need is changing something external to ourselves. And this is even becoming a common view within the church. We must not forget that the the internal need for new hearts that we have While there's great ethnic diversity among humans, we are all the same race of Adam, and we all have the same intrinsic need for a Savior. You know, it's interesting. Paul wrote to many believers who found themselves as slaves. Roman culture, slavery was a huge component of Roman culture. And and you know what? Paul never said your greatest need is to free yourself from slavery. He never said, your greatest need is to change this external system outside of you. Is slavery wrong? Yes. Absolutely. Am I thankful that we have abolished slavery in our country? (laughs) Yeah. But I want us to see here that Paul knew their greatest need wasn't to change an external system. Their greatest need was internal change. Their greatest need was a savior. See, here's the thing, my friends. If you fix a human system that's broken and you replace it with another human system, what do you get? Broken system. You get inability, inequality. You get abuse. You get brokenness. And this is why it's so important to us this week in politics. If everything goes my way externally, guess what? That's not going to change the heart of this nation. And at the same time, if nothing goes my way externally this week, guess what? I still have hope. Because my hope is not in external systems. Now, with that said, the need for internal change does not mean external issues don't matter. Because we're all created in God's image. If there's an ethnic group experiencing disproportionate problems, we need to ask why that is rather than assuming something innately is wrong with them. I give you there a reference to Dr. Clay Jones on YouTube. I was at a conference with Dr. Clay Jones. He's an apologist at Biola University, and he had a talk that really captivated me. He studies genocide, and he says oftentimes in, in our you know, in human uh, culture, when we look at genocide, we often say, man, that's inhuman. And Dr. Jones would say, actually, it's very human. This is what the race of Adam does. And as he studied genocide, one of the things he found is the perpetuators of genocide are never fringe people who are really, really evil people. It's always normal people within their culture, people who would be considered pretty moral. Not the villains, ordinary people. And one of the things that he argued is you you can't um, go and look at any group who's committed genocide and say... They are worse and more evil than any other group of humans. Or stated another way, you have no basis to say, I would never do what they did. Why? Well, because to say that, you'd have to argue from the basis that you're innately better than those people. I could never do that because there's something intrinsically better about me. Really? By the way, he points out the belief of being innately better than someone is almost always the father of genocide. Why mention this? Because it forms the foundation that if we're all part of the race of Adam, we're no more innately better or worse than each other than if a particular group within our country has uh, a disproportionately higher crime rate, we need to ask why. What has happened, for instance, when black Americans have a higher crime rate, a higher rate of fatherlessness, a higher rate of abortion, a higher rate of incarceration? Do they just need to get their act together? We need to be really careful with making statements like that. 
Could it be, for instance, that the effects of slavery are not over? The slavery happened incredibly recently in a historic perspective, not even 200 years ago. And the separation of fam- families, the incredible evils done to people, is it possible that there is still generational brokenness happening as a result? Now, that's not saying individuals can't overcome it or haven't overcome it, but it also, we need to be careful that, and it also doesn't say we remove personal responsibility from people when people commit crime. But to act like it has no impact is wrong. Now, again, with that said, no amount of fixing external things is ever going to work without addressing the internal need for a savior. But it's right and it's good for us to examine external issues of inequality and corruption. And just because human systems aren't where our hope is, and just because we can't find a perfect human system, doesn't mean we don't try to fix things and try to address things. So I think that's really important for us to have in terms of balance as we think about these things. Final thing on your notes here, ethnic distinctions are a creation of God, which reflect his beauty through diversity. One implication of this is it means that being colorblind is not the goal. Sometimes this is how we try to address this. And I see this a lot, not just within the church, but within the Pacific Northwest. We just try to act like, oh, I don't see color. I don't see race. Really? I doubt that. And does that really reflect a value of God's creation? Let me use an analogy. I love to cook for people. I love to have people over to my house, and I like cooking like big meals that are intricate and have a lot of different parts to them and different flavors and textures and all this stuff. And let's say I invite you over to my house, and you come over, and you go and you get my Vitamix. You put it all in there, and you say, I don't see food. You just make this food smoothie. Food is just food to me. First of all, I'm really worried about you. I'm like, whoa, what's wrong with this person? Second of all, does that speak honor to what I have done as a creative person? It doesn't, does it? And in my mind, when we try to just erase cultural distinctiveness, ethnic distinctiveness, when we try to act like it doesn't exist, I don't think it shows honor to the God who created it. Second implication of this is I think that there is an element here where cultural pride is not a bad thing, but we need to have great humility, God-honoring spirit, and a willingness to show honor to other cultures. One of the impacts that sin has had on us is we don't tend to get along too well with people who are different from us. We find ways to dislike people, and we'll do it over the silliest things. I'm not saying we're all racist, okay? But we find ways to have division and hatred towards each other through differences, You could take two towns in America that are completely the same ethnically, completely the same culturally, and if they had two high schools that have football teams that play each other, it won't be long before town A starts saying of town B, they're all cheaters over there. They all, you know, raise rotten brats for kids, and and they have no class. Is this not true? And this is what tends to happen. And when we start to see diversity and when we start to see ethnic distinction through the eyes that God created it, it causes me to say, wow, I have something to be proud of. I'm thankful for how God made me. But at the same time, it causes me to have humility towards differences and say, wow, God created that too. Maybe rather than saying, oh, they're doing it wrong or they need to change this, maybe I can say, wow, look at how that reflects beauty of God. Now, I want to go here. I want to shift us to communion. And one of my goals today is I don't want us leaving here with at the forefront of our mind being, man, these systems are broken or our culture has gone too far this way or whatever. I want to bring our minds to Christ. Because as you walk out from here today, I want you to be thinking about Christ. And I'm going to use Ephesians for our text in communion today. What I'm going to do, I'm just going to read One verse from Ephesians 1, and then I'll invite us to grab the elements and bring them back to our seats, um, and then we'll continue from there. The way we practice communion here at Sunset Bible Church is we um, partake of the bread and the cup 
Uh, These things symbolize the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and we invite you to participate if you are trusting Christ as your Savior. We're doing communion here, physically a little different. Three stations set up. One cup has both the bread and the juice, so you don't have to touch a lot of things. We're not passing things back and forth. If you don't feel comfortable getting up, that's okay. Those of you at home, we encourage you to participate with us and, and follow along. But Ephesians 1 Verse 1, I want you to listen to the second part of this verse. Paul says this. This is how he addresses the letter of Ephesians. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The saints who are in Ephesus. Do you know who the Ephesians were? Before coming to Christ, they were pagan people. They practiced witchcraft. They practiced sorcery. They practiced pagan idolatry. How in the world are they called saints? How did they get that status? Did they reform their government? No. Did they change their cultural identity? No. Did they work really, really hard? No. Did they obtain perfection? Mm -mm. How did they obtain the status? They obtained it through Christ. Saints because their identity was now found in Christ. I want our mind to be on Christ today. That's where it needs to be. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand up. Make your way to one of the stations. We'll continue after you have the elements in hand. There are some of you still getting elements. That is fine. You hold in your hand a piece of bread, it represents the body of Christ broken. You hold in your hand a cup of juice, it represents the blood of Christ spilled. I want to read some verses from Ephesians 2, starting in 11, and I want you to hear, where does racial reconciliation come from? Where does unity come from? It comes from Christ. So as we hold these elements in our hand, we... Look to Christ today and we remember what Christ did for us because that's where our hope is. Ephesians 2 verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time, that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. External differences are real. You weren't Jewish. You weren't God's people. And how does God describe the Ephesians? They had no hope without God. So what happened? Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you see that? There's racial reconciliation for you. Jew and Gentile made one. The wall of hostility broken down by who? By Christ. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. What did those who were far off need? They needed Christ. What did those who were near need? They needed Christ. Neither culture, Jew or Gentile, had an advantage. They were completely dependent on Christ. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see it? Christ is your cornerstone. 
He's where your focus needs to be. He is the answer. This is not a cop-out. It's not saying, hey, don't listen to other people. Don't, don't engage with culture. Don't engage with social systems. But I can do all those things all day long. And if I don't have Christ, I'm sunk. So this represents Christ. I'm going to read from Matthew 26. Bless you, Nancy. Matthew 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Let's eat together. Verse 27. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This cup represents the blood that Jesus shed, the blood that secured a new covenant for every ethnicity, for every race, for every culture. It's in this cup that we don't just look back, but we look forward and we say one day, In a new creation, we will drink this again. Unity and diversity, but all of us declaring Jesus King of Kings. Let's drink, remembering and looking forward. And with that, I'd like to invite you to stand. I'd like to pray for us as we head out from here. Our God, we come before you today with great thankfulness for what our Savior has done. Without Jesus, we would be sunk. And I look at this congregation, a congregation made up mostly of Gentiles. And God, we are very aware that we had to have no hope without you. So we thank you for your faithful, enduring promise, your, your, your faithfulness, and your enduring purpose for the nations. We thank you that you are the God of all peoples, that you and your wisdom and your goodness promised blessing for all families of the earth. And God, we pray that as we go from here, oh, we live in a divided culture, a divisive culture, a culture that is in conflict and clashing. And God, we want to be people who speak truth with love and grace. And as we do so, Lord, help us to view things through a biblical lens that understands Who created diversity and why? God, help us to be people who uh, healing is possible through. Help us to be peacemakers. And God, as we go from here, we do remember, big week election-wise, regardless of how things go, help our, our hope to be firmly cemented in you. And God, we praise you, and we know that you are faithful, and you will continue to be faithful, and you are sovereign, And nothing will interrupt your purposes and your plan. So we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you are dismissed.